If Betty Marion White had ever had her way, she would have been purposefully marching around the high Sierras, helping lost hikers, putting out small fires, and the real reason she wanted the job, rescuing and protecting the local animals. In my heart, I've been a forest ranger all my life, she said in later years. I'm the luckiest person on the face of the earth because my life is divided absolutely in half. Half my animal welfare work, not not animal rights or activism, I don't get political, but just animal welfare work and half show business. This is Swan Songs, Last Acts in Legendary Lives. On today's episode, Betty White gets hot in Cleveland. I'll be joined this episode by filmmaker Dan Watt. He's a friend of Betty's who also supported her in her charity fundraising. I know, tinkering with the format only three episodes in. I'm as horrified as you are, but we'll get through it together. The only child of Tess and Horace White... Betty and the family moved from Oak Park, Illinois, to Alhambra, California, a Los Angeles suburb, when Betty was just 18 months old. This wasn't in any way the L.A. that we know today. With a population of around half a million, it ranked around 17th in population among major U.S. cities, and the suburbs were sparsely populated wilderness. The main thing that the city had going for it in the early 1920s was the Hollywood film industry, which developed there when filmmakers and production companies fled the East Coast in the early part of the century. A litigation-happy Thomas Edison controlled patents for the most important movie-making equipment, and he used that control to shut down any attempts to make movies outside of his own Edison studios. So people took off for the Wild West, largely escaping the reach of Edison's lawyers. Even with that, though, there was still plenty of wilderness in the greater Los Angeles regional area for Betty and her animal-loving family to explore. And the family would take long road trips into the High Sierras or all the way to Yellowstone for weeks-long hiking and camping trips, during which they'd encounter plenty of animals, but hardly any people. I'm not much of a camper myself, but the rest of it kind of sounds like heaven. The Los Angeles area wasn't going to stay a backwater for long, though, and the forces that turned it into the city that it is today were well underway. The film industry continued to grow, as did the black population. Geographically, the city was about as far as you could get from the hubs of racial discrimination and violence in the American Deep South. The first stirrings of the Great Depression at the end of the 1920s saw a rise in immigration from Mexico, as well as from poor Americans who could no longer make livings as agricultural workers. Think the Okies of John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. L.A. grew over this time into a major American city, and by far one of the most diverse. Baby Betty was growing up with the fast-growing town. The Depression hit the Whites as much as it did everyone else, and Dad Horace would build crystal radio sets to sell, with commercial radio only starting to become a thing. But, at least as Betty relates it, nobody had the money to buy the things he was building, so he'd trade them for goods, services... Or dogs, of which the family always had plenty, often caring for them while looking for more permanent homes. Betty mentions having at least 26 dogs at one point, which is a lot. I mean, I love dogs, but that is a lot. Her dreams of becoming a forest ranger were not to be, well, not for a long time anyway, stick around. Since the U.S. Forest Service didn't hire women, except very occasionally as fire lookouts, who'd sit in high vantage points and 
you know, look out for fires. If it doesn't particularly surprise you that the Forest Service wasn't hiring women in the less enlightened 1920s and 30s, you might be more surprised to learn that they didn't hire women for any field positions until 1978. When research forester Geraldine Bergen Lawson applied for a deputy forest supervisor job. Undeniably well qualified, she got the job, but only after assuring the service that her husband was okay with it. I'm just going to say again, that was 1978. If Betty considered chucking her career in the late 70s to pursue her first passion, she never mentions it. So, with her ranger dreams unlikely to be realized, her next ambition was to become a writer, and credits an experience of writing herself into the lead of a play in her grammar school with kickstarting her love of performing. She went on to Beverly Hills High School, which was then relatively new, and would go on to be featured or depicted in dozens of productions, everything from Cary Grant movies to Nickelback videos, right up to the present day. Just seven years after Betty graduated, it would double as Bedford Hall's high in It's a Wonderful Life. It's the scene where the gym floor opens to reveal a swimming pool beneath, dunking James Stewart and Donna Reed. That iconic swim gym, is, which is what they call it, is still there. It's still a thing. Betty was chosen to sing at her high school graduation, the kind of thing that might have been an early career highlight if it didn't immediately lead into something bigger. A shot on TV. Well, kinda. Alongside the senior class president, Harry Bennett, Betty was invited to take part in a performance that would have an audience somewhat smaller than what she'd become accustomed to later, and probably smaller than that of her high school graduation. This was to be an experimental, closed-circuit rendition of Franz Lehar's operetta The Merry Widow at the old Packard building in Los Angeles. Dan Watt, hello. Good to talk to you. Yeah, nice um, to hear your voice. So in 1939, she appeared in a closed-circuit TV performance in Los Angeles. So this was short, so this was shortly before television, before the first national television broadcast. This was uh, this was pretty groundbreaking. Yeah, I remember uh, having this conversation, and she said it was in downtown L.A., and it was at the Packard Motor Car Company. And what they did is they were – it was like a test broadcast. They just wanted to see if they could do it. And they did a version of The Merry Widow, and they did it in one of the boardrooms in the building. And – her parents and some um, other friend and family of people in it came to see it, but they were two stories down in the actual car showroom. And they, I guess, what they transmitted the 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 production there. So it was that was as far as the the waves would go was <laughs> two floors down. So they got to actually see it on screens. Many of Betty's earliest movie memories revolve around the musicals of Jeanette MacDonald, one of the most popular stars of the 1930s. Even in Betty's 90s, she still considered MacDonald's films some of her favorites. So it must have been a thrill to perform a role that her idol had played on screen alongside Marie Chevalier just five years earlier. Betty's audience maybe wasn't quite that of a typical Jeanette MacDonald picture, but it was still a bit of history. That Packard building, by the way, has been converted into luxury lofts, so for between $2,500 and $4,000 a month, you can lease yourself a bit of Betty White and Los Angeles history. So all of that was about two months before NBC, which was then a subsidiary of RCA, 
broadcast President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's opening speech at the New York World's Fair. It was the moment that marked the first real television broadcast in North America, with an audience of, well, hundreds. You know, but it was a start. I hereby dedicate the World's Fair, the New York World's Fair of 1939, and I declare it open to all mankind. It may be open to all mankind, but by golly, they'll have to shove. The experiment that Betty participated in might seem crude by today's standards, but it was cutting edge at the time. In her memoir, she wrote, The show may have been less than enchanting, but for this young Mary Widow, it was totally enchanting. As anyone interested in getting into entertainment at the time would, she did some work in radio, nothing too major, but she did some commercial reads for The Great Gildersleeve, which was a popular show at the time. She also appeared memorably in an episode of a show called The Family Theater, an episode which also guest starred Fibber McGee and Molly. That was another very long-running radio show that was very popular, so Betty got to appear alongside a couple of radio giants. Anyone else in the waiting room, Jane? Just Mrs. McFadden, Doctor. Her feet are bothering her again. Well, let her sit a while. She'll feel better. She's just... Uh... Oh, say, I forgot to ask. Did you have dinner with the McGee's last night? Oh, a wonderful dinner, Doctor. Uh-huh. They, uh... That is, Mr. McGee had a friend over for me. A date, he called it. Oh, fine. Cupid's little helper, uh-huh. What was he like? Well, uh, uh Mr. McGee liked him. He... He told jokes. Great. Pretty rugged, huh? Well, I helped Mrs. McGee with the dishes and went home pretty early. Mm. It's funny how people always rush to help a girl out when she's just broken an engagement or something. Like her heart was fractured and they had to save her from going to pieces or something. Yes, I know what you mean. I'm fine. I never felt better in my life. I was in love, sure. I had a lot of plans, but I only got one plan now. That's to stay out of love. Sure, sure. Nothing wrong with my heart. It's still beating 72 to the minute. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to keep it that way, too. I feel wonderful. Yes, I know. I, uh-huh. Do I look like my life is ruined? I've never been more relaxed in my life. All right, all right. <laughs> I believe you. And before long, she was on to even bigger and better things. Betty got a job. Uh, co-hosting a local television show in L- in L.A. with Al Jarvis. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, because I know you and Betty had spoken a little bit about that as well. Yeah, she said this really helped her uh, develop her, her chops for improv and um, rolling with it, because it was a five-and-a-half-hour day, and there were no scripts. And they did it six days a week. And... The topics were whatever happened the day before, and uh, Al would throw curveballs to her, would change um, ideas. They would only talk a little bit before the show of what, you know, what topics they wanted to discuss. And then if he changed his mind, she would just have to go with it. And they also had to do the commercials. And it was live on air with no interruptions. So she said that someone um, on the production team would just slide a piece of paper on the desk and the desk was off camera because it was live and this hand would just slide something and it would have the, <laughs> the name of whatever the commercial had to be, but it would just say like Buick. And then she had to talk for a minute or to a minute and a half because sometimes they would say stretch about Buick. And she had no idea until that 
piece of paper was slid onto her onto the the desk where they were and she said the biggest day ever for commercials is they did 54 and you think <laughs> i mean how crazy can that be how crazy is it that someone just slides a piece of paper <laughs> or like they call it copy you know the copy yeah. of what you have to discuss on the table and then they count down and boom wing it and you have to sell that product but you can i think that it gave her such a great foundation and made her the actress that she was yeah i mean i can't imagine at that point anything could ever throw you for a curveball right because i mean even the you're talking about the commercial but at least the commercials would be a topic <laughs> i'd almost be thrilled i mean i'm imagining being thrilled to get the commercial handed over to me because like okay at least at least we've at least we, we have a topic <laughs> you know at right. least we've been given something to talk about um it's what and i didn't realize i had heard about you know the al jarvis thing and then she did it with eddie albert for a few months before he i guess from my understanding he just couldn't <laughs> he just couldn't take it <laughs> yeah he couldn't keep up yeah <laughs> uh, um but then after that she did it for herself for a while which i can't imagine i mean i wish if only there were recordings of this that you could watch i mean i can't the whole thing sounds just absurd to me and but then this woman doing this by her for however long this was you know a few months or whatever that she was doing it solo i mean so you're doing all that you don't even have anybody to talk to right you have to talk for five and a half hours yeah that that's a long time and you know you and I are talkers, but I don't know if I could do <laughs> five and a half hours, you know, on my own, just on TV, you know, and just rolling with it. So it's amazing. And it came back, you know, those skills obviously came back so many times in her career because you see her later on doing, you know, Johnny Carson or what, or, or, or talk show, you know, Jimmy Kimmel into the modern, you know, into the very modern era. And you see, you know, you never see her flustered or you never see her get thrown a curveball that she couldn't handle. A hundred percent. And that's why I think so many of the talk shows, like you said, Johnny Carson and stuff like that, she was uh, a member of, I guess he called them the Johnny Carson players. And they did skits where, you know, she played Tarzan and Jane and there was a, they were married and they went out for their, you know, for dinner at a restaurant on the, on the ocean front, but to be able to just keep going. Cause Johnny Carson was live then too, in the very beginning. So you mm. couldn't, you know, there weren't two takes edited together. It was, so whatever happened during that skit, you had to go with, you know? And I think that's why she was uh, highly regarded and uh, invited to participate in so many of those things because she had the experience and, as we know, one of the first women ever on television. Absolutely. And and the, the, the waterfront skit with Johnny Carson, part of the skit was a flood, right? And then um, right. but it, was, was, it was too much water. Yeah, we talked, yeah, her and I talked about it because it was, I fell in love with her then not knowing who she was. I, I, I remember watching it but I didn't know who Betty White was. She was just this mm -hmm. actress on that. But I loved that skit, so I asked her about it, and she said that there was a 500-gallon tank of water above them. And the producers said, okay, so we're gonna, we are gonna can't rehearse this. You can't let out 500 gallons of water, and then, okay, let's just refill it and do it again. Right. So uh, they said, when the water comes down, 
just pretend it knocks you out of the tape, off your chair, and just continue with the script. Well, when they dropped that, fi- that 500 gallons, it literally knocked her on her ass and out of the chair. So, But again, it was live. So she laid there, in there, pretending that she had passed out. And Johnny Carson, if you watch the skit, his face, he really is startled. Like, <laughs> oh, my God, did something happen to Betty White? And then when it was over, he said, oh, my God, I thought I killed you. So it just shows what a pro she was, that even being hit with so much water like that, that she had thrown onto the floor, that she just stayed in character and kept going with the the skit as it was. So by the 1960s, Betty was a ubiquitous television presence, not really known for any particular thing at that point, but just kind of showing up everywhere. She frequently guested on talk shows with Jack Parr and Johnny Carson, as we mentioned, and she began a run co-hosting the Rose Bowl Parade that lasted 19 years. She also made a small but significant appearance in Otto Preminger's all-star political drama Advise and Consent. It's about a Secretary of State candidate whose nomination becomes contentious when evidence of a past gay affair comes to light. Betty plays Senator Bessie Adams of Kansas, loosely based on real-life Senator Margaret Chase Smith, who was in office at the time. Mr. President, I must admit, I'm not a supporter of Mr. Leffingwell, but I watched the hearing on television and it seemed eminently fair to me. Mr. President, I'm sorry if the senator from Kansas was not perceptive enough to grasp what was obvious. I am telling the Senate exactly what happened. As much as I appreciate hearing about the senator's particular view, I am constrained to say I will need more substantial proof than the senator's personal description. Mr. President, is the senator calling me a liar? The record must stand as it is, Mr. President. How the senator interprets that record is his own problem. We skipped past a couple of very short-lived marriages that Betty'd had in her 20s, and by the 1960s, she'd come to describe herself as militantly single. That was before a fateful appearance on the third episode of Password, a game show that would go on to tremendous popularity and a number of revivals into the present. That show's first host, Alan Ludden, had lost his wife to cancer just days before the filming that Betty was on, but she didn't know any of that and was instantly impressed with his ease and warmth. A year later, they were cast together in a summer stock production of Critics' Choice, and the two became friends. Alan, though, quickly made clear that he was interested in more. Betty wasn't so sure. Alan had three kids, and she also had little interest in leaving the West Coast for New York, where Password was filmed. Still, he persisted, asking Betty to marry him multiple times and even wearing the engagement ring he'd purchased on a chain around his neck so that it would be handy if she ever changed her mind. She didn't take the bait. Not for a while, anyway. Over Easter, 1963, Alan sent her a stuffed white bunny with diamond earrings on its ears and a card attached that said, Please say yes. When she picked up the phone that night... Her first word wasn't, hello. It was, yes. It wasn't the earrings that did it, she said. It was the goddamn bunny. The two were married in a small ceremony in Vegas on June 14th, 1963. She said, I spent a whole year, wasted a whole year that Alan and I could have had together, saying, no, I wouldn't marry him. I wasted a whole year we could have had together. But we made it. We finally did. The two were married for 18 years before Alan's death from stomach cancer in 1981. 
Betty made clear for the rest of her life that there had ever been and would ever be only one true love in her life. According to Betty's friend and Mama's Family co-star Vicki Lawrence, Betty's last word, many, many, many years later, was simply, Alan. So Betty settled into the career and life of a sort of television gadabout, but the best was yet to come. Her friendship with Mary Tyler Moore and Mary's then-husband Grant Tinker led to an invitation to make a guest appearance on the Mary Tyler Moore Show's fourth season. She'd play Sue Ann Nivens, the sickly sweet happy homemaker, at least on air. When not on camera for her show within the show, she was tough, self-centered, and entirely sex-crazed. Betty described her as a sort of a neighborhood nymphomaniac. She was so good in the role that she was quickly promoted to series regular, and it won her her first Emmy. And also her second Emmy the year after the first one. After that show ended, Betty immediately began work on a new sitcom from MTM's producers, just called The Betty White Show. But it only lasted for 14 episodes. She settled right back into doing game shows and talk shows until she took a recurring role on Mama's Family, starring Vicki Lawrence, in 1983. On that show, she was joined by another TV veteran with whom she'd become much more closely associated in the near future, Rue McClanahan. The two also became very good friends. Now, The Golden Girls is probably my favorite show of all time, and I could spend hours talking about it, but it's not really what we're here for. Um, So I'm going to show some self-restraint and just hit the high points. During a comedy sketch to promote NBC's 1984 to 1985 television season, Selma Diamond and Doris Roberts, two actresses of a certain age, performed a comedy skit called Miami Nice, a play on Miami Vice, but about old people in Florida. It gave NBC's senior vice president Warren Littlefield ideas. Producers Paul Junger-Witt and Tony Thomas were brought on board, and Susan Harris, best known for her work on the surreal sitcom Soap, was eventually asked to write a pilot script. Estelle Getty was cast first as feisty Sophia Petrillo, though she was only meant to be a recurring character initially. Betty and Rue McClanahan were next in consideration, Betty to play man-hungry Blanche Devereaux and Rue for scatterbrained Rose Nyland. Those roles made sense based on Betty's Sue Ann Nivens character and Rue's earlier role on Maud opposite B. Arthur. Ultimately, and fatefully, the roles were swapped. Elaine Stritch was considered for the Dorothy's Bornack role, but after Stritch's failed audition, B. Arthur got the job, which was just as well, because the character description described a B. Arthur type, so it worked out. History was made. The show ran for seven seasons and earned each of the women Emmys, and continues to be wildly popular in syndication to this day. Following the end of the series in 1992, and it's slightly underrated, if you ask me, spinoff in 1993, Betty continued to do guest appearances in game shows, as well as a few movies. My personal favorite being Lake Placid, in which she plays the movie's foul-mouthed, crocodile-loving villain Dolores Bickerman. Ma'am, your husband burned you. didn't by any chance lead him to the lake blindfolded. If I had a dick, this is where I'd tell you to suck it. The monster movie didn't make a ton of money at the time, but it's become a cult classic with a broader reach than you might think. When I mentioned to a friend from Hyderabad, India, that I was going to the real-life Lake Placid for an event, she immediately joked that I should stay away from the water. 
Betty had a recurring role over several years on the daytime soap The Bold and the Beautiful, and of course she was continuing the work that she'd always done supporting animal charities. She was perfectly busy, and it all sounds like a very reasonable and pleasant way to wind down a career. But this was all before 2009. Which brings us to Hot in Cleveland. Betty's last sitcom had a pretty solid and simple high concept. Three middle-aged women from Los Angeles, all at turning points in their lives, wind up with an unexpected layover in the Rust Belt, where they discover that, while they might be invisible in LA, they're hot in Cleveland. The show looks at the particular challenges faced by women over 40 in America, while also having some fun with the culture clash of West Coast versus Midwest. Wendy Malick, Valerie Bertinelli, and Jane Leaves were all courted for the series from early on, as was Betty White. Bertinelli said of the process, They sent each one of us the script, and I was told that Betty White was playing the part of Elka, and they're trying to get Jane Leaves and Wendy Malick to play the other roles. I said if you can get those girls, I'm doing it. They were all sitcom veterans with dozens of film and TV credits apiece. Malick, who was to play the lovably self-centered soap actress Victoria Chase, starred in Just Shoot Me for seven seasons. Bertinelli, set to play the sweet, slightly naive writer Melanie Moretti, was practically a baby when she co-starred on Norman Lear's One Day at a Time, while Leaves, playing straight-talking beautician Joy Scroggs, had been best known for her role as Daphne in all 11 seasons of Frasier. She'd had a very early career breakthrough working on the absurdist British sketch program The Benny Hill Show. That's not really relevant here, but it's just a detail that I find kind of delightful. I say, uh, did you get my letter? Oh, not off. Here, why'd you write that on the envelope? Well, personal? Well, it was pretty personal, wasn't it, eh? <laughs> personal? Oh, I thought it said personnel, and I've been showing it round the factory. <laughs> the characters would all have echoes of the beloved archetypes that you might recall from the Golden Girls. And Living Single, Sex in the City, Facts of Life, Designing Women, etc., and that's no surprise. Creator Suzanne Martin, who'd been a writer-producer on Frasier, says that the idea originated on the day Estelle Getty, Golden Girl Sophia, died on July 22, 2008. The show clips and tributes that were all going on inspired her to consider the ways in which a modern show about women in their 50s might differ from one done in the 1980s. Martin and producer Linda Obst got together on the project, pitching it to CBS initially before getting some interest from TV Land, which she'd never heard of. At that point, the Nick at Night spinoff network specialized in old reruns with a few original reality shows thrown in for variety. If you were into reruns of Gunsmoke or new episodes of The Cougar, you might have been more familiar with the network than Suzanne Martin was. For Hot in Cleveland, she would end up serving as writer and showrunner, with Hazy Mills, the company run by Sean Hayes, best known as Jack on Will and Grace, producing. Even once the other women were in, Betty White was only locked down for a single guest appearance in the pilot, playing sassy, judgmental caretaker Elka Ostrovsky. Of the negotiations, Suzanne Martin said, I have to say the good and the bad of Betty is that she'll say yes to anyone to a certain extent. But the most wonderful thing about her is that she truly loves to work, and she lives to work, and it keeps her going. So the problem with booking Betty wasn't that it was tough to get her to say yes, it was that she was saying yes to everybody else at the same time. 
According to her, she only agreed to do the pilot with the provision that she wouldn't be returning for more if the show were to get picked up. They were lucky, actually, to have started discussions with her when they did in late 2009. The proposal with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds had just come out, but Betty wasn't nearly as hot as she was about to be. Here's a quick rundown of what she was up to leading to the taping and airing of the Hot in Cleveland pilot in June of 2010. So, in December of 2009, David Matthews started the Betty White to host SNL, please, Facebook campaign that eventually got around half a million co-signers until, by March of 2010, Lorne Michaels and the SNL people confirmed that she'd agreed to host the show in May. Her appearance on the show, demanding on any performer of any age, earned her a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Guest Actress in a Comedy Series, and drew some of SNL's best ratings in a couple of years. It also has the highest popularity rating on IMDb of any episode of SNL ever. So on February 7th of 2010, her highly memorable Super Bowl commercial for Snickers aired. Viewers loved it at the time, and it frequently makes lists of best Super Bowl commercials ever. Around the same time, she was also doing sitcom guest appearances, her normal, very busy schedule of charity work. She appeared in the movie You Again and was working on a couple of books, a new memoir called If You Ask Me and Of Course You Won't. She also read the audiobook for that, as well as Betty and Friends, My Life at the Zoo, both of which came out in the following year. If I haven't mentioned it at this point, she was 88 years old. The point being, when she balked at taking on the role of a sitcom regular, due to her schedule, it really can't be read as an old lady starting to slow down. Things changed quickly, though, starting with a very successful table read. Wendy Malick said of the experience, You never know what's going to happen until you sit down for the first time with everybody else in the cast and you read the script. And we were there with all the people from TV Land. This was their first scripted show, and the writers, and we got finished reading the script and all looked at each other and went, oh my god, I think we caught another brass ring. You could tell that something unusual was going on there. After the network run-through of the pilot, Larry W. Jones, president of TV Land, told Suzanne Martin that he'd, quote, like to pick it up for seven years. But there was still the question of Betty returning. According to her... It wasn't that I didn't love the girls and love the show, but there was just no room in my schedule for another series. No way. Sometimes you do a pilot in February, and maybe you'll know whether it's won or lost by May. Well, they got picked up in three weeks, and the company came to me and said, would I do some more? I said, that was the proviso that I would not. So, I have such a strong backbone. They picked us up for ten, and would I do a couple more? I wound up doing all ten. And they picked us up for twenty-four more, and I wound up doing all twenty-four. They can't get rid of me. She, she said multiple times that she was a firm no on doing more than one episode of Hot in Cleveland. That was absolutely a provision when she signed on that she was just going to be a guest star for just the pilot episode. And that was it. Uh, and then she wound up doing <laughs> every episode for six seasons. Yeah. So do you have a sense of <laughs> what made her go from a no to a yes on that? Well, it was such a no that it was actually in the original contract. She had it put in there that she would just do that one episode. And I, we, when we talked about it, she said that she didn't know if she had the time. So whatever, whatever else was going on in her life, she was writing books, she had filmed a movie, and she just wasn't sure if she could commit 
to five full days of work because she, you know, she had done it before. So she knew what was needed of her. So they actually negotiated uh, with the producers because that was her main, it was just her time. How could, how was she going to be able to do this? And she was very hesitant and thought, didn't think she could. So, they gave her a very flexible schedule. I know Monday was the table reads and she went in at nine and left at 11. I mean, they gave her the rest of the day off. She did the table read and went home. So that made her feel at ease. And one of the other days during the week, she didn't have to go in till later in the afternoon. And it was, I think it was the initial walkthrough or something like that on the set. And then they just brought her in and said, okay, enter here, enter here. All that was already figured out. So she didn't have to be there, but I, I, she, she really trusted her agent Jeff with the time management and and he oversaw her, her schedule and her calendar like that. It actually was this black spiral calendar because whenever I would go over <laughs> there and we discuss what I was going to do for her and help her with her charities and stuff, she'd open up that spiral calendar and everything was written in pencil and she would write it in, you know, <laughs> the old desktop way you just open up your spiral calendar and flip to march so what she always said to me was she loved show business but she had to stay in show business to pay for all her animal charities <laughs> so that's i i really think that that was the determining factor i think that jeff helped her figure out that she could do it you know, schedule-wise, that, you know, the book was almost done. The movie was already filmed. It was going to be released. So she felt overwhelmed, but when you actually broke it down, it wasn't. And and then for the, the producers to give her a flexible, a flexible schedule during yeah. the week uh, to make sure she could do all of that stuff. You know, you said she liked the money for the animal charities, but was she somebody who kind of needed to be busy, or was she somebody who would have just as soon... <laughs> Well, I, don't know if, I think deep down she needed to be busy. I think that, I mean, she woke up so early because many times I had gone to the zoo with her and we would meet there at 6.30 in the morning because the the zoo, the LA Zoo opened at 8 a.m. and she'd want to go see something before the, the general public came in. So we'd get there at 6.30 in the morning and they'd open it up. They'd open the zoo for her and we'd go in and... <laughs> You know, there were times we'd go to the section where the uh, giraffes and zebras were, and she'd feed the zebras. And my job with her was to help her with raise money for her different different charities. So they expanded the hospital. So uh, anything they got, whenever they got new technology in the in the hospital, we would go look at it or to expand the elephant area. You know, so she got up early handled all her stuff and and then I remember the one time a benefactor was going to donate to the LA Zoo was interested in it and she said oh let's see when we can go and she opened up that <laughs> that spiral notebook <laughs> and she flipped you know to the next month and there was like a week with nothing on it and she was like why don't I have anything in the third week and and so it I found it fascinating that a woman who was so busy when there wasn't anything written in there Mm -hmm. she would get anxious like did i forget something did my assistant donna forget why don't i have something should be on that week why is there nothing written in my in my little boxes so i think she also had that 
that bubbling in her. I think Betty was also, she loved to work and she didn't need a lot of hours to sleep. She was always up late. You know, we had some late night phone calls and then she was up early. I don't want to get too deep into psycho- psychoanalyzing Betty White. Do you feel like there was at all, I don't know if insecurity is the right word, but do you feel like there was, aside from her need to be busy, do you feel like she felt like she had to stay out in public to keep, you know, to, 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 to maintain the Betty White of it all? Do you think she had that drive to, I have to be on stage, I have to be see No? No, I don't think. Uh, I truly believe that she did not understand how beloved she was. Mm. I think that it was it was always very humbling and she couldn't understand it. And the perfect example going back to Hot in Cleveland is I went to the filming of the pilot and I remember when she said she was going to be filming this this new show, I said, oh my gosh, I'd love to go. And she goes, are you sure? I mean, it's just... It's not even picked up yet. This is the mm. the pilot. I'm not going to be on the show. We're just going to film it for them to try to sell it. I'm like, of course. I'd love to see you uh, do that. So uh, my husband and I went to see that. And, you know, that amazing cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the ladies, when the show was over, they all took their bow. When Betty walked out, there was this roar from the audience that startled her. And people, <laughs> and it was a lot of it was friends and family because it was a very very small audience. Because again, it it was the filming of it to try to sell it, right? Um, which ended up being the pilot that they used, and people had brought roses for her, and she she was absolutely shocked. You know, people came to see the show, waited in line, bought her flowers just to show their appreciation to her when she walked out. And I and I remember the women just splitting to let her come through between the two of them. I mean, between them, between two of them. And you could see it in her face that she didn't get it. She didn't quite understand. She's like, well, I just did my job. Why is everybody standing <laughs> up and, and handing me flowers, you know? So... They got their Betty. They were off and running. The show debuted on June 16th, 2010 to blockbuster ratings, certainly for wee little pay cable channel TV land. 4.75 million viewers tuned in to watch the show, making it the highest rated and, and most watched telecast ever for the network. Even without Betty, the show's cast would have been a draw. But this was less than a month after her SNL appearance, and Betty had formally crossed over from beloved TV presence to octogenarian superstar. Ask you something. What's the deal with old ladies in tracksuits? Well, it's simple. In your 20s, you dress for men. In your 40s, you dress for success. In your 80s, you dress for the bathroom. <laughs> Especially given that the show was inspired by the Golden Girls, it's clear that Betty White was playing the sassy, no holds barred Sophia role. And there's a neat symmetry there in her casting. On that earlier show, Estelle Getty was a last minute addition to the regular cast. Sophia was only ever intended as as a recurring guest star, a character who'd pop over now and again, but Getty's performance in the pilot bowled over both the producers and early audiences. She was quickly added as a regular cast member, replacing Charles Levin as Coco, the girl's gay cook and housekeeper. 
In that instance, Getty was a lesser-known stage actress whose comedic talents came as a surprise, at least to the show's creators. Betty was, of course, a very well-known quantity who was courted from the very beginning. The Golden Girls in their 50s were treated as all but geriatric, a societal attitude that the show tried to push back against. The Cleveland Girls, around the same ages, deal with attitudes about middle-aged women, but they're never treated as ancient. There's not a gray hair in the bunch. That feels like progress in a lot of ways. Our aging population has perhaps made it easier to see people in their 50s and 60s, and in Elka's case, 80s and 90s, as vital, relevant, and sexy. We're at least as youth-obsessed as ever, though, so it might also represent an increasing need to appear young, with fillers and Botox ever more at the ready. And, hey, no complaints from me. The show smartly jokes about extreme beauty regimens without being particularly judgmental. She and Mamie Sue have been smuggling meds in from Canada for their friends who can't afford them. I mean, these are all just old people meds? You, you don't have any Botox or wrinkle cream? <laughs> Those were old people meds too, dear. Over the course of the show's six seasons, did I mention that the show started when Betty was 88? It drew an impressive range of guest stars, many with strong ties to TV history. Joan Rivers showed up. Carl Reiner played Elka's love interest for a time, as did Tim Conway and later Bob Newhart. Carol Burnett played Victoria's mother. Several others had very specific ties to Betty's career. Georgia Engel, who was Georgette on The Mary Tyler Moore Show, played a recurring role as Elka's best friend, Mamie Sue, while Ed Asner appeared as her old arch-nemesis. Mary Tyler Moore made two appearances, the second in a season four episode from 2013 that served as a near-complete MTM reunion with Mary, Betty, and Georgia, joined by Valerie Harper and Cloris Leachman as members of Elka's old bowling team. It was to be the last time they'd all work together. That same fourth season also saw the first of the show's two live episodes, the other being in the fifth season premiere. Both of them went off without a hitch, and Betty, now in her 90s, didn't seem to have lost a step. Although the show was famous for some of its more off-color bloopers. I signed up when my bender was over. In fact, that's my screen name. Bender over. <laughs> the show even produced an animated episode, also in the fifth season, and this is the first time we ever visit the apartment on the property where Elka lives, the first time we'd ever seen it. And the clever conceit here is that the girls enter only to find themselves in a cartoon wonderland. Listen, I work on the happiest set I've ever worked on in 63 years in this business. But you abuse a privilege. (laughs) (laughs) The show's final episode, I Hate Goodbyes, aired on June 3rd, 2015 with a double wedding and an adoption. Joy and Bob, played by Dave Foley, deciding to name their child Elizabeth in tribute to the real-life Betty. Although, of course, Elizabeth was not her full name, as she would point out on multiple occasions. It was actually just Betty. 
The show flashes forward five years where we learn that, in spite of all the changes in the main characters' lives, the four women still get together every Wednesday night, which was the day the show aired. Elka, like Betty, was 93 years old before that time jump, so five years might have seemed... optimistic. But even though Hot in Cleveland was her last major role, she kept working for most of those five years. She made guest appearances in shows including Bones, Crowded, and Young and Hungry, where she was reteamed with Carl Reiner. During a celebratory appearance at the Emmys in 2018, she looked a bit more frail than we'd been used to seeing her, but... She was 96 and gave a funny, moving speech that earned her a standing ovation. With COVID on the horizon, she did voiceover work in Trouble and Toy Story 4, where she played Bitey White. She was scheduled to appear in a Lifetime original Christmas movie in 2020, playing a woman who may or may not have been Mrs. Claus, according to the description, but COVID-19, unfortunately, made that impossible. The last part of her career, she really sort of settled into that that sort of naughty grandma brand and that was you know you'd see her on talk shows doing sort of slightly off-color jokes you know she's you know she's not she's not raunchy but she's she's sassy she's a little off-color was that was that betty or was that betty's brand it was betty and and i think i think with with elka and hot in cleveland and that opened up a, a a door where she could be more or be more like herself because she was so quick-witted and had a, I don't want to say raunchy, a blue blue sense of humor, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she had Sue Ann Nivens that took her way that way. And then Rose Nyland was a complete opposite. And this was like a combination of of both of them. Mm -hmm. And I think she felt very at ease with that. And I know we... When she did Saturday Night Live, we talked about it, and she loved, loved the skit uh, where they're talking about uh, the muffin because she loved <laughs> the line about talking about her crusty. I think it was crusty muffin or, or dusty, 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 dusty. Muffin. Sorry, you've got to be very. But when you're talking about Betty White's muffin, you have to be very specific. Right, exactly. <laughs> and she she loved that line, but she loved delivering stuff like that with that you know. Double entendre, is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, and so she loved doing that kind of stuff. And it was it was funny because she was she was also very polite and I tried to get her. I wanted her <laughs> on my phone. I wanted to have whenever she called me, I wanted a specific thing to come up. And I tried to get her to say fuck you. Because I wanted, whenever <laughs> she called me, I wanted the ringtone to be Betty White saying, fuck you, Jeff. <laughs> and she wouldn't. She just wouldn't say it. And she said, unless you put it in the in the script and pay me, I'm not going to say that. So there you have it. Betty White. Naughty for cash. With preparations well underway for celebrations to commemorate her 100th birthday, Betty died peacefully on December 31st, 2021, just a couple weeks shy of her centennial. Of course, that just meant that New Year's celebrations around the world were spent commemorating her life and her work. 
that seems like a natural place to end. But it's not where I want to end. I want to go back a few years to 2010, when Hot in Cleveland was just getting started. Of all the big things in Betty's life and career that were going on in that moment, I'm sure there were none more significant, to Betty at least, than her induction as an honorary U.S. forest ranger. I'm sorry you couldn't join us before, said U.S. Forest Service Chief Tom Tidwell. Judging from your illustrious career, you would have made marvelous contributions to our agency and to the cause of conservation across the United States. Betty, you are a role model for little girls, for all of us, never to give up on our dreams. She never did. Of all her accomplishments, she lived to see her one true life's ambition achieved. This has been Swan Songs, Last Acts in Legendary Lives. It's written, produced, and edited by me, Ross Johnson, and I also put together the incidental music. Thanks so much to Dan Watt for joining us to reminisce about Betty White. His award-winning documentary, Everybody Dance, can be found on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, pretty much anywhere you stream movies. His website is danzadanproductions.com, and you can also support his work with kids in the performing arts at artattackfoundation.org. Thanks also to Valerie Bertinelli, who was kind enough to answer some of our questions about the filming of Hot in Cleveland. So nice of her, and so nice of you for listening. Thank you. If you like what you heard, please consider rating and reviewing. It's a huge help. We'll be back next week with more Swan Songs. I'm sorry, sweetie. Honey Badger doesn't give a shit.